headlines are meant to be eye-catching. They're written by editors in such a way so that you'll stop and say, I need to read that. But sometimes headlines and stories they lead into are so profound, so big, so momentous that any headline couldn't do it justice. Have you ever run across a headline so subtle, but yet so profound? Consider the headline in the Boston Globe from April 13th, 1912. Titanic sinks, 1500 die. Or 30 years later, the San Francisco Chronicle, FDR, dies. Or on September 12th, 2001, the New York Times headline was, America Attacked. These headlines are subtle, yet profound, filled with meaning and implication. And in our text this morning, we come to a familiar and similar headline that is both subtle yet profound. It's world-changing, eye-opening, earth-shattering. Samuel is dead. Our text begins with these words, Now Samuel died. It is the end of an era. It's the end of one of the greatest leaders in the nation of Israel. The one who was the last judge. The one who who began the prophet's school, who trained up prophets. The one who would lead God's people to anoint their first and then their second king. Samuel died. We've been considering Samuel's story. And more than that, God's story. About how God was not done with his people. Though they had abandoned him and wandered off into gross idolatry, God was yet at work, graciously raising up the leaders they needed, giving them his word that they desperately desired, though they did not know it. God has been at work to raise up the kind of leader that his people needs. And and over the last few weeks, The scriptures have really been God's leadership training course for David. It's fascinating to consider that if we were to train up a leader to lead us, we would not send him through these type of trials. But the Lord did. God was preparing young David for his kingship. Through these various trials that he faced, he was learning how to trust the Lord, how to depend upon His providence and believe His promises. We've also seen throughout these weeks of of study in 1 Samuel, contrasting kings. A king like the world, handsome. A king that was rich and noble. Yet a king who had one problem, 
He wanted to follow himself rather than the Lord. And so we saw this contrasting king, King David, who stood as a a polar opposite of Saul, where, where Saul was vengeful and wicked and evil. David was righteous and good, delivering God's people from their enemies. But over the next few weeks, we'll find that King David has a sin problem too. David's heart was sinful just like Saul's. There's some tension in these stories. For you, it's not so much felt, but imagine if you were an Israelite who has been enduring the evil wickedness of Saul and hear stories like the one we'll consider today. That David is riding off, seeking vengeance for himself. Or David in chapter 27, fleeing to join forces with the Philistines. David, what are you doing? Aren't you not our king? Are you not more righteous than Saul? Our text also gives us comfort. Even righteous King David can fall into sin. Even he can doubt the promises of God. Well, I invite you to turn this morning to 1 Samuel in chapter 25, a rather lengthy and detailed story, perhaps unfamiliar to you, but one brimming with great application for us today as God's people. Because like us, we, we are wronged in so many ways. So often we have the temptation to seek revenge, to go our own way rather than God's way. And this is what David faced in in our text this morning. 1 Samuel in chapter 25, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace to your house, and peace to be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servant, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. 
Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men whom I do not know where they came from? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skin of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisin and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And he said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of all that, he, that all that belonged to him. And he returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then. My Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make the, a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pains of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you. 
who has, work, who has kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come down to meet me, surely by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was very merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servant of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey. And her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was in Galen. Well, as we consider this story this morning, God, under his, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has given this as a gift to us this morning. I trust to teach us that as Christians, we must not, we must not take matters into our own hands. We must not take matters into our own hands, but trust The Lord's will. The story is meant to teach us to trust the Lord, to trust His will, to trust His vengeance, to trust His providence. And so our hope this morning is that we will be instructed, that we will be taught when you are tempted to take matters into your own hands. When you're tempted to go your own way, So this morning, we want to broaden this, not merely to revenge, but also when you are tempted to live apart from the will of God. The will of God is is for you to follow Him and not yourself, to do His will, not His. That's what we prayed at the beginning. Lord, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do we need when we face these kind of temptations to revenge, or to take matters in our own hands. First, you need to think before you act. You need to think before you act. Secondly, you need the help of a godly friend. Third and finally, you need to trust Jesus will make all things right. You need to trust that Jesus will make all things right. Well, let's consider first, you need to think before before you act. 
Well, we're introduced in our story this morning by two characters, are we not? Two new characters are before us, Nabal and Abigail. Nabal, we are told, is a fool, a wicked man. Nabal was his name. It meant fool. Remember David's psalm? The fool says is in his heart, there is no God. You could read it this way in Hebrew. Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. Perhaps David had this on his mind as he was reminded of the foolishness of, of Nabal. We are told that Nabal is a wealthy man, very rich. He has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. The, the man is loaded. He has plenty to go around. That is what makes this offense all the more worse, is that Nabal had abundance, but yet was unwilling to share the abundance. He had leftovers after leftovers. He had sufficient. As the story tells us, he had enough to, to throw a feast as for a king. Nabal had plenty of resources, plenty to go around. And he was married to a wise woman. Look with me in verse 3. We're told that Abigail was discerning and beautiful. The story will prove this to us in short order. It'll tell us how she was wise, how she was discerning. You'll notice that the servant that we encountered that told her about Nabal's offense didn't tell her what to do. The servant knew how wise and discerning she was. Perhaps he had experienced firsthand her wisdom before. And so he goes to her and says, Abigail, you must do something. You must act. You know what's best. Act. This is very different than, the, uh, than Saul, who regularly has to seek guidance from others, get others' advice. Here, Abigail demonstrates her wisdom and prudence. And we're told in the story that David comes to Nabal with a very humble request. A very humble request, is it not? David did not ask for enough food for his 600 men. Rather, David asked for just meager rations, a meager amount of food. Whatever you have on hand, David says. Well, whatever it is you have left over, we'll, we'll take it. Don't, don't, don't worry, we'll take it off of your hands. But Nabal refuses. He plays the fool. He plays the part that represents his name. Now clearly no one probably would have named their, their son or daughter fool. Perhaps this was a nickname that he garnered because of his actions. Nonetheless, we, we see that Nabal plays his part. In verses 9 through 11, notice what the offense is. How he offends David. David's men came in the name of David. Right? So this is like spitting in his face. He came with all of his authority. I'm David. Now notice what Nabal says in verse 10. Who's David? Who is David? Who's David? Well, David is the Goliath killer, is he not? He's the one whom we've told fame spread throughout all of Israel. Nabal was a wealthy man. He didn't live in some obscure corner of the universe. 
He lived right there in the midst of all of the action. He was a Calebite, we are told. He was a fellow Judite. He was a kinsman with David. He would have known of David and his reputation. And you know how we know that? Look at verse 10 again. Who is the son of Jesse? Apparently he knew David's dad. He knew whose David belonged to. You'll remember Saul, when when David killed Goliath, what did he ask? He said, whose son is that? Well, here it's known, isn't it? Nabal knew who David was. He knew that he was the giant killer. And given Nabal's wealth, he knew that he was Saul's enemy. Nabal, like many rich individuals, hang out with other rich folks. And they're going to protect their own. And here we see Nabal not giving anything. In fact, notice what Nabal says. He says, there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. You see that? How does he view David as Saul's servant, slave, and Saul his master? He's accusing here. And then you see in verse 11 the pride of Nabal. Notice how many times he uses the first person in the text. Look at it. Shall shall I take I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men whom from I do not know where. In other words, you see Nabal's self-centeredness and evil. I heighten all of this in the text to demonstrate how furious David would have been. This is a smug, arrogant man. He's the kind of man that, you know, you, you just you feel like you have to go take a shower after you talk to him. He's just so self-centered. Like, really, could you be any more self-centered, self-focused? This is the man that, that David's servants face. And David is hot. He is white hot. He is beyond red hot. David is ready to kill. Now you be reminded who David was. David was a man who by his own bare hands, the the text tells us, that he ripped lions and bears apart with his own bare hands. He, He wasn't some little scrawny shepherd boy. He had some strength in him. He was the man who, as we just said, killed the greatest warrior of the day, Goliath. He was the one who went down and killed the ten thousands of Philistines with his own bare hands, without a sword. David is ready for action. He is poised to take action. And he will not let this stand. Chapter 25 presents us with a very different David than the one we saw last week. Last week we saw a cool-headed David, right? In the midst of the cave, Saul before him doing his business, we were told that David patiently and stealthily went up and cut the corner of his robe. David here and so quickly 
begins to play the fool himself. Notice what he says, every man strapped on a sword, and every man of them strapped on a sword. And David also strapped on a sword. And notice how many men he takes with him. 400 men to deal with one fool, one idiot. David's anger is displayed in the kind of force that he takes. Is this not similar to what Saul did to David? When he gathered his 3,000 men against David's meager 600 David here is tempted to fall into the same trap, the same vain glory and pride that Saul fell into time and time again. Because remember who they went in. They went in the name of David. It was David's name that was on the line. It was David's pride that was on the line. It was David's reputation. And David would not allow his reputation to wane. We're told later on in verse 21, Surely in vain have I guarded all of this fellow, this worthless man, this fellow. The language here harkens back all the way back to Eli's two sons. The the narrator of the text here is is wanting us to have Eli's wicked sons in our mind. This, This wicked fellow here, David was gracious. He had provided for his servants David knew what it was like to be a shepherd. He was a shepherd himself. And what does David do? He, he guards these shepherds. He protects these shepherds. He keeps them safe. He didn't have to do this, but he did it. He did it as an act of kindness and grace. And what does he met? When he does good, what does he met with but evil, right? Surely in vain have I guarded this fellow so that nothing was missing of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. Notice what he says in verse 22. And for our King James readers, you'll get a, a little bit more of a vulgar taste of what David says here. God do so to the men, the evil, the enemies, excuse me, of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one, what males do in the bathroom, that's what he says literally, of all who belong to him. In other words, David is vulgar. Because he is mad. The vulgarity of David's language here demonstrates how angry he is. He cannot be reasoned with. Notice something that's missing in the text. No one stops him of his own men. They're excited. Finally, we get to do something. Finally, the injustice, we can spring into action. Friends, what do we learn from this text? An unguarded heart will lead to sin. David's heart was unguarded in the text. It was self-dependent. It was self-centered. What he cared more about was his own honor and his own name than the will of the Lord. We're, we're also told, and we're not told, excuse me, in the text, that he ever stops and prays. In other stories similar to this, What David does is pause and pray, Lord, is it your will that I do this? Is it your will that I go and kill your enemies? In the text, we're also told that this is David's enemy, not the Lord's enemy. David needed Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, what we need to do is stop and think. When we face similar temptations, when our names are disgraced, when we feel attacked, we need to stop and think, not spring into action. So often our hearts go so unguarded. Even this morning I was reminded as studying this morning uh, in devotional time how quickly the Lord's day can be unguarded. It can be unguarded. In other words, what I mean is, is that the enemy of all days of the week, the day of the resurrection, the day we gather to celebrate new life in Christ. Do you not think that this day the enemy would see to have for his glory? We must have guarded hearts. We must have lives dependent upon the will of the Lord. That's what Paul exhorts in Romans 12. Know what is the will of God. Well, we read... We heard from Rod earlier, Romans, same chapter, a couple verses later, what the will of the Lord is. Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Seek the good of your enemies. Don't return evil for evil, but return good. We need to seek God's glory and not our own. In other words, God is glorified when an enemy becomes a friend. My own life, not because of my own choosing, sometimes you garner enemies. And there is nothing more sweet nothing more encouraging, nothing more gospel centered than when an enemy becomes a friend. You see, when those who are against you turn and embrace you, is that not a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We who were his enemies has turned and welcomed us as sons and daughters. That's why Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Pray For those who would seek my own death? What? That's silly. Know what that is? That's the world. And we shall not be conformed to this world. Brothers and sisters, the point of our story is clear. We must think before we act. Or our story continues. And it leads us to our second need when we face this type of temptation. The temptation to seek revenge. The temptation to go our own way rather than God's way. Verses 14 through 35, we see that you need need a godly friend. That's what you need. You need a godly friend. Verses 14 through 35, we see that Abigail was a godly friend to David. Abigail did not know David. Clearly she knew of David. They were not prior acquaintances up to this point. The text takes a very surprising and unexpected turn between verses 13 and 14. 
In verses 13, we have David running off, ready to to annihilate all of Nabal and his family, kill all of them, slaughter every one of his men. But yet steps an unnamed servant. Sometimes these unnamed people in the Bible are, are so sweet in measure of grace, are they not? We are told in verses 14 through 17 of this unnamed servant who quickly came and sold Abigail. Listen, our foolish master has, has really outdone himself in his fool, foolishness at this time. He has provoked the lion of the tribe of Judah, and it's going to be ugly. All of us will be dead by morning if you don't do something. And what we have before us is an entry point of another female in the story of First and Second Samuel. Hannah being the first, Abigail here being another. That displays God's character and His grace and forgiveness. We see the characteristics in the text of a godly friend. In verses 18, we see a friend, a godly friend, is one who is quick to act. Abigail doesn't sit back and say, hey, you know what? I'm kind of tired of this man anyways. My old man, he's a fool. And I, I'm ready for a new husband. And so, you know what? I don't care what happens to him. Oh, she's quick to act. Because she knows that what David is going to do is going to be sinful. The, the language here of blood guilt is murder. David would, the crime that David was about to commit was murder. This was not mere manslaughter. This was intent to do physical harm. The, the Torah, the law of Moses made clear that this, there was no loophole that David would find. In fact, what, what will be appealed to is David's future conscience and his kingdom. In other words, if David goes through with this, then David's kingdom, his throne would forever be marred with the blood of Nabal. The blood of a fool. But we're told in the text in verse 18 that, that Abigail is, makes haste. She's quick. She springs into action and she gathers together all these resources and goes and meets David. So we see that a characteristic of a godly friend is one who's quick to act. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, Paul tells us, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Brothers and sisters, what we need in a godly friend is one who's quick to act. In other words, one who doesn't sit back when we're in sin, or when we're tempted to sin. Verses 20 through 22, we see a godly friend is one who is fearless. One who's fearless. She is not going up against a cool-headed man at this point, is she? No, no, she's going against, as we've just seen, against a white-hot, angry man who is ready to kill anything in his way. And Abigail, sweet, beautiful Abigail, stands in his way. She's fearless. She's unafraid. David could kill her in an instant. She doesn't know how deranged he is. He's poised for action, yet she is fearless. Notice in verses 23 through 24, a godly friend is one who's humble. Notice what she does. Look with me. 
Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She's, she's just doing what David did previously before Saul. She's humbling herself before David. She's diffusing her enemy, right, with grace. Verse 24, and she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. No, no, no. Abigail, you, you got it wrong. It was your, your idiot husband who did this. Not for Abigail. It's on me, she says. It's on me. I did this. I, I, I'm sorry. It, it was on me. We need a friend who's humble, who speaks the truth in love. A godly friend is one who's willing to take it on themselves. I heard a, a godly pastor a few, a few weeks ago, he was sharing about his work of revitalizing a church. And he said, you know, one of the greatest things you can do when you talk to people is take it on yourself. Just say, yep, that's on me. It may not be on you, but you take it on you. And he said, that's on me. That's a godly, that's a godly man who's willing to take other people's wrongs and put them on themselves. Brothers and sisters, we need those kind of friends. We need the kind of friends that, that, don't, that don't provoke us to further revenge. Oh, yeah, you know what? You're right. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe that. Oh, yes. Let, let me help conspire with you to seek revenge. No, she was honest. She was frank. But she was humble. She took it on herself. She was willing to take whatever punishment was owed to Nabal on, upon herself. As we'll see in a moment, a godly friend is one who takes us to Christ. And I believe our sister does this in the text. Number four, we see that what a godly friend is, is one who's unafraid and who is willing to speak the truth in love. What a godly friend we need is someone who's unafraid to speak the truth. And that's what she does in the text. She says, David, what are you doing? If you carry this out, you will be known as a murderer. That will be your reputation. That will be what the foundation of your kingship. You will be known as the murderer of Nabal. And his blood will be on your hands. And you will have defied the Lord God Almighty. You will be a rebel against the will of God. Brothers and sisters, what we need is the kind of friend who comes to us. Like David prayed in Psalm 141, let a righteous man strike me, it's kindness. And let him rebuke me, it's oil for my head, let my head not refuse it. Now I know in the midst of confrontation, I know when someone speaks into your life and says what you just did was sinful, or what you're about to do is sin, that doesn't feel like kindness, it does not feel good. But for David, who had experienced this, he says that it's like oil, anointing oil upon the head. It's sweet. Or as Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Brothers and sisters, do you have friends who you claim are friends, but they're rather enemies. And here's why they're enemies. If they allow you to continue in unrepentant sin, they are not a friend, they are an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, faithful are the confrontations, the godly calls to repentance. Those are good. Or as Paul tells us, 
in 1 Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. A godly friend is not only one who's willing to speak the truth. We see in verse 28, a godly friend is one who reminds us of our future. Look at what Abigail says. Please forgive the trespasses of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. Evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. She goes on to say in verse 30, And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince king over Israel. She reminds David of his future. She says, this is not your future. Your future is not to be cast as a murderer. Your future is to be the king of Israel. You're the one who's be the representative of the righteousness of God. This is what John does in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Brothers and sisters, we need godly friends who will remind us that we are going to a place, an eternal place. On Wednesday night, we considered our eternal place and the perspective that that gives in current context. It transforms. It it makes really big things seem really, really small. Someone cutting you off. Someone cursing your name. I highly doubt you'll be much concerned about it in a trillion years. In a trillion years, I doubt that you'll be concerned that your boss lied about you and deceived others around you. I doubt, little, that you'll be concerned in a trillion years whether or not your name got the recognition you thought it deserved. I doubt, little, in a trillion years whether or not you'll be concerned with your will but you will be consumed with the will of the Lord. Finally here, and as the story concludes, Abigail offers the hope of the gospel. She reminds him not only of the future, but reminds him that salvation is the Lord's. Depend upon the Lord and He will save you. Brothers and sisters, what we need in godly friends are those who will lead us to the gospel of grace found in Jesus Christ. That none of us have gone too far. That none of us are too guilty. That there is marvelous grace to be found in the cross of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, do your friends offer such advice? Or do they rather offer you the the same old worldly wisdom that has been offered since the days of David? Get your enemy and get him now. Get him while the killing's hot and the killing's good. David returns the grace of Abigail with a blessing. In verses 32 through 35, 
We see the blessings of a godly friend. David blesses David for her discretion. He blesses her for her willingness to step in. Brothers and sisters, from this, we don't have time to look at all the intricate details here, but here's the question I have for you. Do you see the need and do you see the gift of a godly friend? Do you see the need and the gift of a godly friend? This was God's work. And it was God's gift to David. Do you seek out these friendships? Do you welcome them? Look, I would be weary of any friend who only praises you and never corrects you. Because if you believe in the depravity of man that all men are evil and your heart is perverse and all your friends are telling you is how awesome you are, well, their problem is they don't know Jesus and they don't know the gospel because you ain't all that awesome and neither am I. I'm a sinner in need of grace. No, of course, we're not running around, nor are we saying, hey, we're just going to go around and tear each other up one, up one side and down the other. No, no, no. A godly friend is one who corrects and who offers the gospel. The one who says you're a sinner and here's the remedy for that sin. Jesus. See, that's the difference between judging and correcting. And I know us as Christians, we go around, oh, we're not to judge one another, we're not to judge one another. I just don't know where you find that in your Bible. Because it's not in there. Paul says, who am I to judge outsiders? I'm to judge those inside the church. He gives the church in Corinth, who really had some problems with judging, a license to judge. In other words, Paul knew the danger of sin lay dormant. Sin unconfronted will destroy a church. It's a cancer that spreads. It is vile and wicked and evil. And what we do is we confront the big sins and the little sins where gossip's not that bad. Talking down on others, that's not that bad. But I wonder, could we create a culture in our own congregation where we're willing to give and receive godly criticism with the hope of the gospel, when someone gossips, we just shut it down and say, brother, sister, that is sin. But Jesus died for that sin. Repent and believe in Him. Tearing down your enemy, tearing down another sister, another brother, will not give you the joy that you seek. Only Jesus will. This leads us then to our final point. You need to trust Jesus will make all things right. You need to trust Jesus will make all things right. We find Nabal confronted with a judgment day come early. For Nabal, judgment day came a little sooner than he thought. Look at what we are told here. And Abigail came to Nabal, verse 36, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house. He's just spitting the face of David. And what's he go? He goes about his business. Who was David? I don't know who that flea was. Get away from me. And he holds a feast like the feast of a king. Nabal thought something of himself, did he not? He thought he was the king. 
And Nabal's heart was merry with him, and he was very drunk. He wasn't just drunk. He was very drunk. As if there's a gradation to drunkness. Apparently, it was beyond drunkness. And, and Abigail, again, in her wisdom, withholds the news until the morning, lest she confront and rile up this drunk. Verse 37, in the morning when the wine, when he sobered up, when he got himself maybe overwhelmed with his hangover that he had, his wife told him these things. And notice what happens. His heart dies within him and he becomes a stone. He, he has a stroke. The news is so frightening that he either has a heart attack or strokes out. And we are told in verse 38, ten days later, the Lord struck him dead. The Lord gets his man every time. The Lord gets his vengeance on those who seek to do him harm. And the point of the text is that we need to trust this about our Lord. That this story, though we don't pray that this is true of our enemies, right? So we're not running around, man, Lord, strike them dead today. Strike them dead. Man, that person that cut me off, I hope they run off a cliff. No, we don't pray that. No, that's not what we're praying. But we trust that in the end, the Lord, that his will will be done. You see, the Lord worked everything out for David. David, David didn't need to do that. The Lord had a, another plan. He had, he had a bigger plan in mind for Nabal. It superseded David's plan. It even superseded Abigail's plan. She, I don't think the text means for us to understand she did this because she thought her husband would react in such a way. But we also see something that happens when you trust the Lord. Notice what the Lord does for David. In verses 39 through 44, the Lord provides a bride. Not only does God get David's enemy, but he gives David a bride. I think we're meant to understand from this story that those who trust the Lord get a greater reward than vengeance could ever give. You see, that's the promise of sin. The promise of sin is that you will get a bigger high, a greater pleasure. And that is the lie of sin. Look, I'm not going to lie to you this morning. Sin is pleasurable. That's why we do it. That's why Satan can get you with sin. Because it's good, it feels right, it feels good. But anyone who has ever sinned, and everyone in here, if you would just stop and think for a moment, what is it about sin that is so frustrating is that it, it is fleeting. It doesn't last. The high of sin doesn't last. That's why we have to keep going back to it, and back to it, and back to it, because it... We need a, a fix again. And it felt good saying nasty things about my friend. It felt good belittling that sister in church today and making her feel stupid. It felt good to, to curse that person. Today. It felt right. We know those feelings only last for a moment. 
Particularly if we have the Spirit of God in us, we know that those spirits turn to bitterness in our mouth. Hardness of heart. But truly, if you will seek the Lord's will, you will be rewarded. If you will seek to follow God, you will be rewarded. The point is simple. We do not seek vengeance because it is not our responsibility. It has not been assigned to us, but to another. To Jesus. Our high priest and our king. The ruler of the universe. While none of us will be put in a situation like David, each of us face this temptation every day. Each of us have been, are being, or will be tempted to take matters into our own hands, even today. As Christians, we must learn to trust the Lord's provisions. We must depend upon His grace and rest in His divine judgment. As we face these temptations, let us supply ourselves with these needed provisions. With the need to think, to have our minds renewed, to stop acting like the world. To gather around us godly friends who will steer us away from sin. And ultimately, let us all see our need for Jesus today. To rest in His eternal judgment. Let us know that God sees all things, knows all things, and will make all things right. Let us trust, live, believe, and rest in this truth. That vengeance is the Lord's. It's His. And it's not ours. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we trust that you are sovereign. What more could be said than that truth? We trust and rest in your sovereignty. And even now, as we gather to partake of the Lord's Supper, we can't help but be reminded that we were your enemies. But yet you chose to save us. May we not seek the harm of our enemies, but may we seek their good for your glory. It's for your glory and our good in Christ, we pray. Amen.